everybody, welcome back. We are talking to Marissa Morby today, and we're going to talk about uh, product management and prototyping and wireframing and how to get all that stuff uh, done and how it can help you with your side projects. Um, we had a blast talking to Marissa, so we hope you enjoy it. Uh, if you want to support the show, check out our site at techjar.dev and click subscribe. Uh, tweet us at TechJR Podcast, leave us a review on iTunes, tell all your friends, we appreciate it. Uh, I will also be speaking at DevFest on November 16th. Uh, I'll be giving a talk on PWAs, so uh, come check it out and meet uh, Eddie and I in person. All right, that's all I've got. Uh, enjoy the show. Welcome to Tech Junior. My name is Lee Warwick Jr., full stack JavaScript developer. Have with me, as always, Eddie. Hey, it's Eddie, a uh, front-end developer. And we have a special guest today. We have uh, Marissa Morby. Marissa, if you could introduce yourself. Hey, I'm Marissa Morby, um, and I do UX design and product management. Awesome. So uh, Marissa is a former product manager for Gatsby, has a, a lot of experience with um, prototyping and design. And a lot of developers are really bad at that, myself included. I'll be the first one to say it. <laughs> so we're really excited to, to talk to Marissa um, about kind of like the planning aspect of, of development. So uh, if you could maybe tell us like your background and how you got into this whole thing, we'd uh, then we can maybe get into some of the prototyping stuff. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So um, I have a background doing UX research uh, and design both. So I started out... Um, doing UX research specifically for uh, copywriting. So I did a lot of content management and content creation. And in order to do that and do it well, I originally started talking to customers and you know hearing from them what they needed, what their concerns were, and things like that. And I would just start to roll that into the writing that I was doing. And that slowly morphed into doing more uh, design as well. So taking the things that people were saying and the concerns I was hearing and uh, creating both the, the content and design um, and doing that at uh, the previous company that I was at. And then from there, uh, kind of rolled into more of a product management role where we would look at the entire landscape, not just of the customers, but also of the business and of the product we were creating and thinking about, okay, well, what are we creating? Why are we doing it? What do people need? And then working together with an engineering team, design, et cetera, everybody to kind of come together and get a cohesive product, uh, into the, like a little ball that we could actually start to work on and ship. Awesome. So like I said before, uh, developers are, well, at least I struggle. I'll speak from experience. I really coming into programming kind of struggled with, okay, you want to make something and you kind of have a vague idea of what that thing is. Mm -hmm. But as you start to develop it, like most people, I, I would venture sit down and just start coding right away. Uh, kind of through that process, you end up, um, tripping over yourself and coding and then refactoring and kind of doing a lot of work over and over again in like this uh, clumsy process of developing something and maybe defining the requirements along the way. So I'm really interested to hear kind of like, you know, your perspective on how you should go about something like that. Like, how mm -hmm. do you nail down requirements before you actually start something? Yeah. So that uh, I think is 
a recurring question no matter where you are on the journey. Because <laughs> I think that that is one of the biggest things, like one of the biggest obstacles is trying to define that. So really, um, as a product manager, what you want to do is try and <laughs> corral people together in order to start asking the right questions. So I'm a really big believer in asking the right questions to find valuable insights. Um, there is no right or wrong answer, right? So you can, you can come up with all these ideas. Neither of them, none of them are right or wrong necessarily, but you're trying to find a way to actually come to a cohesive decision together. And so, um, as a product manager, what that means is going in, getting all of the stakeholders in a room together and starting to guide them and ask the right questions. So, um, in order to do that, you really have to make sure that you are talking through what you're doing. So what is it that we're here to do? Like if it's a product, if it's a feature, if it's just an idea, what is it we're trying to accomplish? Why are we trying to do that? And then what is the outcome that we expect to see? So you kind of, you have to take it to a higher level of uh, almost the theory of what you're doing and why you're doing it. And then make sure that you have the right people in the room. So that means developers, designers, if you have people doing research, get them in the room as well. Um, other stakeholders like leadership need to be in the room too. And you you have to start to kind of whittle down from this nebulous idea of, oh, this is what we want and this is where we're going and really start to ask these questions about, well, why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? Until you get down to a scope that is actually somewhat manageable. Uh, and from there, you can start to think, okay, so now this thing that we want to do has been whittled down quite a bit. We've thrown out some ideas. We have a better idea of what we're doing. We're starting to understand why we're doing it. Um, and you can start to get that information from design, from engineering, from leadership to understand each of their areas of expertise as it, as it relates to the product. Can you do it from an engineering perspective? Is this something that could work from a design perspective and how difficult would it be from a leadership standpoint and where the business is going? Does this make sense? And so as a as a product manager, your goal is just to kind of corral all these questions and make sure that you become kind of the sieve that makes sure that things get parsed through in a way that is understandable and relatable and shared throughout the entire team. Cool. So kind of as the project, maybe this is the initial step, but then as you get started and as the project moves along, uh, I assume you're also involved kind of making sure that everybody's on track to reach that, that agreed upon goal and make sure like as the features get built, they uh, maintain parity with kind of what the plan was. Mm -hmm. And that, and yes, and that's kind of where product management and project management start to see a divergence because in project, in project management, you want to make sure that you are driving toward those timelines or driving toward that uh, scope, depending on how your company does it, right? If you're uh, like sprint driven, if you have specific timelines, if you have specific scope that you uh, are engineering toward, your project management would make sure that 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 is on track and product management would make sure that your backlog, the work that you have coming up is always has the most important thing kind of rising to the top so that you know what to work on next. But yes, after you've 
decided where you're going, someone needs to be in charge of making sure that it's actually on track and checking in and ensuring that people are able to get answers to questions if they have them, if uh, something gets off track, that it's highlighted and communicated to the team. Awesome. So uh, kind of the other aspect of this is it sounds like you have a lot of kind of a UX UI design background. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had uh, interviewed another uh, designer, uh, Travis Nielsen, um, a little while back. And it's always funny talking to um, people that are kind of like entrenched in UX UI because you get kind of this super high level uh, discussion that happens where, you know, from my seat as a developer, I'm like, okay, I want to design something. Tell me what colors I should use or tell mm-hmm. me like how my buttons should look or something silly like that. And the answers you always get are like, well, we want to talk to the user and we want to see like, um, do they spend time on a train or in a car or are they sitting at a desk? And and that kind of like is 90% of the discussion. And then like the final 10% is what the button should look like. Mm-hmm. So um, w- what's your kind of take on that as a somebody that's kind of had both uh, been in both seats, I guess? Well, you might not like it because I agree. <laughs> because I think that uh, the the majority of the design process, um, it, it, it comes from a place of research and understanding. So you have to know what you're working with and where current problems lie before you can start to tackle them. Um, and so deciding the placement and color of the button really is kind of the final, it's the final stretch. Um, but I do think... I, I do think that having prototypes and wireframing this and kind of sketching it out beforehand really does help as a visual aid, both to help you if you don't have people that you can talk to. Because a lot of times, if we have a new idea or we're, we're just excited about something and we want to try it out, we might not have the, the time or the resources to go talk to a bunch of people. So in, in lieu of that, prototyping and wireframing is a really great way to be able to get everything down in a tangible visual format so that you can start to think through those things, even if you don't have people to talk to necessarily. Okay. I actually, I was kind of interested to, to ask Eddie about this a little bit because Eddie has a design background. So, um, Eddie, like I, when you were, I, when you were, I do, but I have like, I've never really dealt with a UX person. Yeah, so, so so Eddie um, has has done design for a long time, and so I'm kind of curious, like Eddie, do you do a lot of this like UX kind of stuff, or do you focus mostly on like the prototyping kind of thing? No, it's just like um, like I like to hand sketch stuff before I like plan out um, like a project or something, and then just plan it out so I know so co- you know before I go into coding and whatnot. But I've never worked at a place because most of my design experience has been like print based. So there's there isn't much UX there. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, it I would think that help design get be a little easier um, as far as because I haven't really at this point um, as a developer, I've worked with more of those uh, people in those positions um, than I did as a designer before this. So, yeah. Yeah. So um, it sounds like maybe the, the UX side of it, you might not have the privilege to kind of get that far. 
or to, to take that far of a step back and you may kind of go straight to prototyping. So uh, do you have any tips or, or anything for um, maybe if you don't have a bunch of research that you can do beforehand, like how, what kind of questions maybe can you ask yourself about a project that you're mm -hmm. planning um, to maybe kind of nail down, you know, a certain direction? Yeah. So uh, interviewing yourself is also very useful just to think through it. So yeah. if you are, if you have, um, if say it's an app or a site that you're, you're trying to think through, um, I always sketch it out first too, um, typically on paper. I know that a lot of times I say that to people and they're like, what's that? Yeah. Use that pen and paper? <laughs> I don't understand. Um, but I, I love to do that because it, it makes it easier for me to kind of think through stuff when I'm writing it down. Yeah, um, and so as I, as I do it, I, it, the first draft is usually terrible and it's like, you know, I just put in placeholders of like, here is where a button might be and here is where <laughs> text might be. But then I think to myself, okay, well, what am I trying to do? What am I, what is my intention with this thing I'm creating? What do I want people to be able to accomplish? Um, why am I doing it? So why are people going to come to this site? And then after I get through the what and the why, I start to figure out, okay, well, how might they do that? How might they travel through that site? And what does that journey look like? And so it's probably backwards. <laughs> uh, so maybe people shouldn't listen to this, but I, I try to do the, um, I, I do like a really terrible hand-drawn little sketch. And then I do the workflow. And the reason that I do that is that for some reason, for me, sketching up a couple screens that are really bad just starts to like jolt my brain into being like, okay, well, this doesn't, none of this makes sense. You need to go back to the beginning. And so when I go back to the beginning, it's always like, okay, user lands on this page. What am I going to do next? And then I start to draw, um, just the the customer journey from there and that's something that you just you know you can you can write on a piece of paper they start on the home page then they click and go here and then they go here and do this and then this is the thing they do after that step one two and three and you start to see how things branch off and from there now you have each of your workflows is probably a separate screen um or you know, a combination of interactions on one screen. And so for me, just jumpstarting it with that initial sketch prototype and then doing the customer workflow, I can ask myself a lot of the questions and pretend to be the user myself, even if I'm not. Um, but it helps me think about what that journey looks like. Because really, even though it's online and we're looking at all this through a screen, it's very similar to if you're walking through a house, right? Each each new page is a door. You have to open the door. Well, what happens when I go into the room? And so I just try to think of it in a tangible way as I, as I start to plan it out. Uh, I really like that, uh, that both of you said that you, uh, <laughs> you sit down and draw it out first. Um, from my seat, uh, whenever I first got into development, I, I had to do something like a hangman game. And so, you know, they, they kind of tell you when you're coding, pseudocode everything, you know, plan out what you're going to do. And to me, and, and it seems like a lot of other people kind of had trouble writing out in words what's supposed to happen. So yeah, I sat too. down and, and did like boxes on mm -hmm. MS Paint and just like did a really, really terrible uh, prototype in Paint. But then going from there, I was like, okay, well, if I click in this box, 
I should be able to type or I should be able to press a button. Should I be able to press that button again? And kind of like the business logic kind of came naturally that way. So that, that actually makes a lot of sense uh, to me uh, sitting in the developer seat, um, hearing like, okay, well, if you have a visual of what you're going to be working with, you can kind of like really quickly understand if you're making a terrible decision or not. So I think that's, that's really good advice and maybe even better advice than, Hey, sit down and pseudocode everything. So <laughs> now that we're kind of like already on the topic of prototyping, yeah. um, how, how do you do it? What, what tools do you use and, and, uh, what do you recommend? What's, yeah. what's the workflow like for that? Well, so the, the probably least exciting tool is just a paper and pen. Um, which I do if I'm like doing something for myself as a first draft, I will, I just create little boxes and do my prototype on a piece of paper and a pen or on a whiteboard. Um, that helps me think through it. But then from there, once I want, have something that I actually want to share with people, um, there are a few really good tools that, that I really like. Uh, whimsical is the first one that you can use for like customer journey mapping too. So you can actually do the customer workflow and then show the wire, like a wireframe or a prototype beneath it. Um, it's not going to be interactive. Um, okay. through whimsical, but if you're trying to go super lo-fi, like just show basic wireframes as your prototype, it's really, really good and, and has everything like in one spot. Um, I love Figma for doing clickable prototypes. If, if that's something that you're able to do and have time to do because they have a really easy tool that just allows you to like add the path from the button. And then when you look at the prototype, you just click it and it shows you kind of how the screens work. Um, and then if you want to get really exciting, you can <laughs> do uh, it, or if like you don't want to do that in Figma, but you have, say you're using like Sketch or even Whimsical, you can upload that to InVision and they will help okay. you do a clickable prototype um, in your, you can like create a free account and just do your own prototypes through there. And you can even do user testing in there now, which is kind of cool. So I've oh, okay. used that cool. in the past as well. Um, that's cool. Yeah. Which one of those is maybe the easiest to get started with? Whimsical by and far. Is, is that like an online kind of thing? Yeah, or it's just whims whimsical.com and they have, you can create a free account and it's, uh, they have like a wireframe, customer workflow maps and uh, prototyping screens that you can kind of select from and just play around with. And it's all drag and drop. Okay. Oh, cool. okay. Yeah. Whenever you uh, sit down to use one of these things, like you have some kind of idea for a, a project or an app or something that you're going to do. Um, do you just sit down and start with like the home screen or what's your kind of first step? I should sit down and start with the home screen. And I but typically don't. don't. Uh, no, I, I think I probably do it really backwards, honestly. Like I typically start, oh, I shouldn't even say this. I typically start <laughs> at the end. Really? And, like, I don't know why. I just like, I think maybe because I just want to get where I'm going. And so I start like the first thing that comes to my mind is always the last step. And so I always have to go, I have to then work backwards. Um, but, but that's how I do everything. I think that's just how my brain works. So I don't ever start at the homepage. Uh, I, I will start with the end state. Like this is the end state that I want to see. And then, um, I'll look at that and I'll be like, how would anyone even get here? 
<laughs> and then I start to think about the customer journey and then I do the like the actual prototype. So I was working on just one of my own projects uh, yesterday and today and I did exactly that. Like I started at the end screen, realized that that of course was silly because this is where they'd end up. It wasn't the beginning. And then I worked backwards and I was able to do the whole customer journey and all of the screens for the prototype pretty quickly because I knew where I wanted to end up. So I work backwards from the beginning, I guess, or yeah. So if you were going to, let's say, make a, uh, a portfolio website or something mm-hmm. and the end goal was you wanted the, the user to be interested in you and click on like your resume or your, like click mm-hmm. submit an email or something like that, some kind of like call to action to contact you. Mm-hmm. Um, you would start there and then like, okay, well, how can I entice them to do this thing? Yep. That would, yeah. My first <laughs> screen that I sketched up would probably be that. And then it would be like, wait, they have to get here. So how are we going <laughs> to do that? Um, and then that way, but that way the end result and what the ultimate thing that I want someone to do is clear in my mind from the beginning. Um, and then I can engineer how I should, I shouldn't say engineer. And then I can design, I can create how they go, like what the path they go through to get to the end result. But I need to make sure that that end state, that outcome is what I want. So I think that might be why I do that. It's just like a, it's something I never really thought about that hard till you asked me. Well, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That way, like, well, here's the goal. We want the user to reach this point. So let's work backwards from there. Yeah. Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. I might Um, try that. (laughs) <laughs> He's inspired now. <laughs> so um, I always have to ask whenever we have somebody that's uh, like design focused or inclined on the show, uh-huh. like if you have any tips for uh, <laughs> new developers out there, like stay away from this color or uh, don't, you know, don't add 300 pixels of box shadow on something or yeah. like, what, what are some things that maybe like gripes that you have about designs that you see or kind of like good tips for anybody out there that's getting started? Mine is going to be very basic. And that is, even when you don't think you're doing design, you are. So just because, like, we are all we are all designers because we're creating these things, right? So there, someone who's much better at visual design would probably know about, like, placement and just the gestalt principles and all that much better than I would. Um, but my, the thing that I always try to remember and try to impress upon people is that because we are creating things, we are designers. So that means our first thought should be, how do we, how do we keep other people in mind in the thing that we're creating? Because I'm not you, you're not me. And we all have different experiences. And so making sure that we're taking other people's experiences into account as we create things is probably the most important design principle that I think we can remember. And we always, we're in such a time now where we can always iterate on what it looks like, um, but how it works and the outcome that it has is baked in when you start to make the thing. So make sure you're doing that well. Make sure that's designed well. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Cool. So maybe to break it down, um, I only use websites on a desktop, but you should still plan for somebody oh. to look at your site on a phone. 
Yep, right? exactly. Or like right. the person you talked to before said, are they looking at it on a train? Are they looking at it at home? Like where, where are they looking at it? What are they trying to do? Because they may not use it the same way. They, they will never use it the way you expect them to use it because people just tend to do that. They refuse yeah, yeah, to can, use uh, things the way that they are expected to. <laughs> I, I can definitely speak to that. Um, working on like a, a Gatsby blog of all things. I had code snippets in it and I wanted them to be editable snippets and kind of like run on the page. <laughs> and so the editor that I was using would wrap the text if the, uh, the window got too small. And so, you know, lo and behold, I write a couple posts, people like them. Uh, one of them gets on Reddit and then all of a sudden I get this feedback of like, Hey, great article. I got halfway through it and I gave up because of the code snippets wrapping. I was like, oh man, come oh, on. No. <laughs> like I, was, I was reading it on my iPhone XS and I was like, gosh, how small oh, is that thing? Yeah. It's like this 300 pixel wide phone or something crazy. And so I looked at my snippets on them and I was like, yeah, these are unreadable. So I, <laughs> I had to go back and like add horizontal scrolling to the snippets so it would preserve like the original line breaks and stuff to make it yeah. readable. So yeah, I mean... Um, I've had that like, mo like design mobile first drilled into my head, mm -hmm. uh, over and over as a, a web developer. And even then, like I still, you know, didn't take my own advice and, uh, kind of missed that one. So it, it makes a lot of sense when you, when you say that, you know, you should definitely take into account all of your users and not just, you know, your perspective. And it com becomes kind of a fun thought experiment, right? Because how I move through my day is probably different than how you move through your day, but we all kind of want the same things. So we all want things to be fast and easy and require as little work on our part as possible, right? But we're, we're living probably different lives. And so trying to think about what your day may look like that's different than my day and how we can make sure things fit in together. I don't know. It's a fun thought experiment, at least for me. <laughs> yeah, and that's, uh, uh, there's a lot of buzz around accessibility nowadays. Mm -hmm. And um I kind of have gotten into that, that kind of mindset as well. Like, gosh, well, you know, maybe somebody is using a screen reader to read this. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you start like adding alt text to your images and, and, you know, basic stuff like that, mm -hmm. just in case, you yep. know, somebody's going to come yep. along and, and try that. So, yep. uh, or, you know, try tabbing through your, your form or something mm -hmm. to make sure that somebody can, you know, work only on a keyboard for it. So, yeah. uh, kind of a lot of stuff like that ends up finding its way into your, your, your development uh, workflow, yeah. even when you don't think that it will originally. Yeah. Yeah. It's important. It's important to think about the other people that you may, that are just, just having completely different experiences. So it's a, it's fun. Yeah. I had a, somebody that uh, I was mentoring was like looking at my blog or whatever, and they hovered over an image and they're like, Oh man, that was some really descriptive text there. That's really awesome. And I was like, yeah, man, that's alt text. You should be <laughs> adding it to all your images. Yeah. <laughs> so you should always um, do that. Yeah. Always, always do that. Um, mm -hmm. I think it helps for SEO too. If you need another reason to, that's to why I said that yeah, an ethical yep, person. It but. does. <laughs> yep. Um, going back to, uh, to prototyping, um, mm -hmm. We mentioned before we got on here uh, about wireframing and lo-fi mm -hmm. prototyping. Mm -hmm. So can you maybe explain that a little bit to everybody and kind of maybe tell us how you do that and, and what it is? Yeah, yeah. so wireframing um, to me is, a, is slightly different than lo-fi prototyping. But um, when I say lo-fi prototyping, I mean like super simple, 
right like drawing it out it's the kind of the first pass that you have at something and when i'm doing lo-fi prototyping i'll just draw out my ideas and then um either i try to think through them and think about how things work together or i will uh give it to somebody else to kind of think through the screens um and i just work with another person to have kind of more mind power as we're thinking through the the way that the the product or the app or whatever is going to flow. So uh, lo-fi prototype can be something as simple as a uh, paper and pen sketch or, a, you know, something that you're putting in Figma that isn't really clickable. It's just like screens and boxes on those screens. And then um, wireframing really shows how things are working together in a little bit more of a flow. So a wireframe is going to walk us through the steps in a little bit higher fidelity in that we know that this interaction is going to lead to this next step. Um, but they're both good and that they're helping us get, they're basically helping us get tiny, a tiny bit more fidelity on each pass. Um, and a lo-fi prototype just allows you to kind of share it around with people and see does this first pass make sense and what things am I missing? And the, the wireframe allows you to see how interactions work together so that you can start to make uh, better decisions as you're iterating on your idea. How important is uh, feedback in that process? Like you mentioned sharing it with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure at like, you know, a company or something, you're going to make a prototype, send it around, and then people kind of say like, yeah, you're nay to it. Mm-hmm. But uh, maybe on a more personal project, like, would you show it to friends or family or, you know, what's your, your take on that? Yeah. So at company projects, what I've done in the past, um, that has worked really well is I will get, um, an engineer, a designer myself, um, in a room to look at things. And I, I remember, uh, one of the places that I worked, they were like, oh, well, I don't know that we will, we need to have people in so early, but when we did that, things got done so fast because everybody had, there was a baseline of understanding once we came to the kind of final conclusion of where we were headed with that, um, that specific, it was a, it was an AB test. So once we had decided where we were going with that test and what the page needed to look like, it was really fast, um, to be able for us to develop it because we'd all been in the room. And so instead of taking several passes over the course of a few days, it was like one, our meeting and then we all kind of took it workshopped it got together and made the final decision in another meeting um so if you can at your company get people in a room together i think it's really helpful to do early on once you have that idea if it's a personal project um i will get people that uh i kind of assume or deem to be the person that would be using it. So if I'm doing a lo-fi prototype on something that, like a project that I'm working on for myself, my mom may or may not be a user of that. And if <laughs> she would not be the typical range, like age range and type of person that would be on that site, I wouldn't ask her. Um, but I might ask one of my friends who has similar interests to me, so would probably try out this site if they knew about it. Um, which is kind of a really messy way to do screening, like user research screening. But you have you have to you have to talk with people that you think are going to be more in your demographic that are going to be using the the product. Where That's does cool. I was just going to ask uh, where does all that fit in the uh, the UX process? Are you 
prototyping first or doing research first or like how does how does that work yep so it depends on the project itself but i typically love to do research first and okay. what what you're doing when you're talking to people is you're just getting all of this information that you can pull out and kind of take those insights and summarize them up so that you know what you're working toward if and that and that's if you're doing and like i said it depends on the project because if you're in a company that is more um customer driven where they want to be responding to customer needs and figuring out what's wrong and they already have a, a product that they're trying to grow that's already really stable then you're going to probably doing be doing more research first and doing optimization and iterating um, and doing prototypes based on the research. If you're in a more product-driven company where you're trying to um, understand the market and get ahead of the needs before customers even realize they have them, you're going to be doing a lot of prototyping first, throwing stuff out there based on what you've seen in the market and what you've seen in adjacent industries, prototype that out and then test it, like do research um, after, after you've got that initial prototype. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 What, what kinds of questions are you asking? Um, so it, when you're talking about the very initial step, um, if you don't have a prototype at all, um, I typically like to do discovery work. So I want to understand you always go into research with a specific, um, like with a specific question that you're trying to answer because otherwise it's just a really nice conversation where you learn stuff about someone, but it doesn't really go anywhere. Um, so I typically go in trying to understand why people are doing things a certain way. Um, and I have a goal, like I want to find out why do people use Gatsby? or something, right? So there's a specific kind of core question that I want to understand. And when I go in then, I want to under, I ask them things like, okay, well, why are you using Gatsby? But then I also ask, how did you get into it? What do you love? What do you find frustrating? What is the, the, the dream state or like the best possible outcome that you could imagine as you're using um, the product or the framework or whatever it is? Um, and then I like to get an understanding of what their, if it's for work, what their uh, kind of daily work life is, because it's important to understand how the product fits in their daily life. Um, and that to me is all discovery work because we don't really know anything about how people are interacting with our products. So getting a full holistic picture of what that person is um, experiencing at work, why they got into something, why they're interested, where they're frustrated and where they're happy helps us be able to find pain points and gaps. And once we can find pain points and gaps, we're able to fill those in with either new product or optimizing the product that we already have. Um, and so asking questions that allow me to discover more about a person's work life and what they're using and why they're using it helps me be able to identify that. Okay. Are these uh, surveys or what kind of interviews are these? Like how, how are you getting All this information? All types. There's okay. so many. So you can do, uh, if you want to do really quick, get 
information back really quickly that's kind of high level. You can do surveys that are like in the product or on the site itself. So we see those all the time, like the little uh, sort of pop-up surveys that come yeah. up just to ask about people's experience and what, how is it going? Are they able to find what they're looking for? Things like that. Um, but typically I would do um, like calls like this where we would get on the, the phone together and I would have them either walk me through how they're using the product or just have them talk to me about um, what's working and not working from a, from like a, a team standpoint and how the product works within their team. And so that, that then can be either a usability study where you're actually asking them to show you specific problems, or it can be a study where you're starting to learn about how people are using your product day to day and from team to team. And so getting on the phone is a great way. Surveys is a, is a great way as well. Um, and then in addition to that, making sure that you have uh, some type of passive data that's coming in. So being able to do some type of data tracking to see how people are actually interacting with things on the, on your site. Cool. Did you uh, come across or maybe have any kind of anecdotes about some surprising things that were unearthed in that process working with like Gatsby? Like, oh man, we thought that people were going to use it this way, but they actually came in and were using it this way. And then like, how did you guys handle that? Yeah. So we, um, let me think about a specific instance. Cause I feel like with Gatsby specifically, we, when we got like preview out there, that was one of the main things people had been asking for. So just making sure that kind of core functionality worked was a really big thing. I think that in addition to that though, one of the things that we didn't know that we learned as we started to, to talk to people was about how people set up their repos. So um, we started to learn as we talked to people that different, different types of companies and different sizes of companies managed their repos in ways that we didn't expect. So um, companies that were like people would have mono repos where we wouldn't really expect them to have mono repos. Um, and then even if the team was small, we would find that sometimes they had several, like someone working on um, the develop branch and the master branch at the same time. And so we like, but the team was very small. So we were like, why is that happening? How are you guys deciding to ship things um, and actually push stuff to master? So we, we found the biggest kind of the biggest questions around how people were managing their repos. Um, and it was something that we knew we were going to have to account for at some point. But um, when we started doing initial research, it there was a lot more variance than we had expected. So when you say like a, a mono repo, do you mean like multiple websites running through the same Gatsby project or something like that? So, yeah, so we would have um, multiple Gatsby projects running through the same repo, or we would have, um, like, if people were set up on um, Gatsby with, like, their master branch and then their develop branch, they would, the way that it, like, would 
be connected with, say, contentful was different than we expected. And so it wouldn't, it wouldn't show the preview for the right um, branch that we would expect. So like there, people were using, people were separating out or separating out branches in ways that we didn't expect, or they had mono repos when we didn't expect that they would have them at all. Um, so anyway, it was just, it was interesting to see how different teams would manage uh, their repositories because it, we we knew kind of we knew that we needed to have it on the master branch right to be able to have preview on the master branch but we didn't we didn't realize how uh, big the variables were going to be based on the team size so and when you're talking about review uh, preview you're talking about um, is that like when you're running the development version of a Gatsby project. Um, so no, so the preview would be like a live preview on the, um, it would be on the master branch itself. And so you could make a change, um, like change the, the title of a blog post and open up preview and it would change the title. Um, but it, it wasn't actually pushed live, but it would only be on the master branch. Um, and so trying to figure out like how people were doing this and how they were managing their repositories within their teams then would impact the preview that they actually wanted to see. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Um, if you wanted to talk about like user experience horror stories, I'm sure like Git would be <laughs> one of the first things that would come to mind. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Like the setup, I mean, they've done really good work in the setup and try, like how they split things out. It's then just trying to like mirror it and carry it over so that you're actually pulling the right information. <laughs> so, right. yeah. So um, I was kind of curious. I, I saw you, you put out a tweet uh, earlier today. Um, I think it was today about uh conference talks mm -hmm. so oh um, yeah i saw that too did you see that eddie yeah i kind of wanted to ask uh while we have you on the air like um i've submitted a couple of proposals and mm -hmm. kind of like eddie and i are interested in doing obviously the public speaking thing a little bit so um if you could i, I don't know if that was like a talk that you gave or a presentation or something mm -hmm. but i would love to hear your advice uh, for people out there that are interested in conferences yeah so i did um there was mm -hmm. a diversity cfp um day a diversity cfp day that i was part of um a couple years ago and it was basically helping people write cfps for their first conference so um what is a cfp for anybody that doesn't know cfp is a call for proposal and so when you're <laughs> going onto a conference website they'll say like our you know we're we're accepting calls for proposals um and a lot of times they'll have a form or sometimes it's just like they want you to they want you to send them an email, which is kind of terrifying to me. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, basically, it's, uh, yeah, so advice for, for calls for proposals. So my biggest thing um, and the, the biggest takeaway, I think, that, that I learned from submitting a lot and getting rejected a lot is uh, <laughs> it, the, it, a lot of it comes down to the story that you tell. So um, you're trying to get someone interested in about 500 words or so. Um, if, if you're lucky, sometimes you have a little bit more wiggle room and sometimes not. And 500 words seems like a lot until you're actually trying to explain an hour conference talk. Um, 
And so you need to set up a pain like, oh God, this thing is terrible. Why is this happening? Um, and identify the dream. So like, this thing is terrible. What if it could be like this? And then some type of twist or surprise that people aren't expecting. Like that either something like, oh, this thing already exists or we're thinking about it entirely wrong and we need to, to shift the way that we're approaching stuff. So uh, creating a story for people when you're, when you're doing a call for proposal um, that has a pain, a hope, and a twist. Um, I think, at least in my experience, that's been been the most most effective. Um, but be always telling a story. People love stories. There's like whole books on how our brain interacts when people tell us a story. Um, so making sure that whatever it is you're saying, it's in a story format and follows kind of uh, a narrative. So. Um... Maybe I could, uh, I, I submitted a proposal to a talk. I got re- rejected, but the feedback was like, <laughs> we love your talk. We just don't have room for it. Oh, so okay. um, the talk, the premise was, it was about junior developers and kind of um, turning the uh, their perspective a little bit on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the pain point, I think, in that one was there's a lot of junior developers out there and they can't get hired. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's a lot of companies out there griping about we can't find developers. So there's obviously like a big, you know, either opportunity or mismatch or however you want to look at it. So beyond that, I was kind of thinking, well, if I could explain, you know, some positive points to bring on new people, that would maybe encourage them to apply uh, maybe outside of a a very juniorish posting or something. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, maybe somebody from a team would think like, maybe we should invest a little bit more into our hiring process and kind Mm -hmm. of onboarding. So... I kind of worked through that problem a little bit and put together a proposal that was like, you know, hiring managers say that, uh, we can't hire juniors. We can't afford it. We can't, um, take the time, all this. And then I came out that with, okay, well you can't really afford not to, because you know, you're going to have to hire people anyway. You're going to have to onboard somebody at some point and you're missing out a tremendous opportunity to improve the communication and mentoring skills of the developers that you do have by not letting them mentor somebody. Mm-hmm. So um, that whole process, like what you described, like the pain, the the good headline, the the twist makes a lot of sense whenever I looked back on kind of the work that I did for submitting that proposal because, you know, you're, you're writing this thing for humans. So uh, if you come at it with like a bunch of business requirements or something like, yeah, this technology does X, Y, and Z, you know, people's eyes start to glaze over, right? Even, even like the, the most excited developers. So <laughs> yeah. you had a, a really good slide in that slide deck that was like the 67% headline and then like the <laughs> 87% headline or something. So um, how, how do you kind of like work that language to make things more exciting? Yeah. So I use, and you'd have to, you'd have to check the slide cause I can't remember the name of the site, which is terrible, but there's a site that I use that it's an actual headline checker. Um, where you can go type in your headline and it'll kind of pop out the uh, a quote unquote score. Um, but when you're thinking of always write your headline last. So write the whole story first that you're trying for the call for proposal. And then at the at the end, workshop the title and the and realize that the title is going to take you like 
probably more time than the story. Um, and wow. it should be, um, and I, I, I don't know that I have the best way to explain it, but like it should, the title should compel you. It's got to have a little sizzle to it, right? Yeah, like it should, it should have a feeling. So like the best titles that I've heard are either they're beautiful, like they just sound beautiful and it makes me want to read more, um, which is more like I think in the kind of alliteration and like how language works in our brain. But so there's, there's that, or it's something that like, I totally disagree with. And I'm like, no, why would you say that thing? How, like, what are you saying? And then I want to read more cause I'm so mad. Or it's something that I'm really excited about. Like, um, that I agree with that like connects with me on a very deep level. So I, I want to understand more or, they're combining two things that shouldn't go together and I don't understand. And in order to understand, I have to learn more about it. So there's like these different kind of avenues that you can take, but I feel I, in my mind, you feel, you can feel when the title is good. It like, it hits you in a way that, um, boring titles don't. And I'm not great. I'm not great at it. Like it's really hard. I'm not fantastic at it though. The, it's, you know, it's terrible because it's like I know it when I when I see a good title I know it. Can I do it on command? Absolutely not. But um, <laughs> I think workshopping the title at the end has been the most helpful for me. And you really do like when you have a good title, it just like it does. Like you said, it sizzles. It does. Yeah. You're just like, ooh, yeah, that's yeah. That's it's it. always like a it, it's best as as a hot take or something or like mm -hmm. something you read on Twitter that like blows up. Yeah. So maybe in my case, I could write something like. Um, addressing, you know, disparity between team expectations and new developers uh, or something really boring like that. But then like the really sizzle version of it would be like, you don't deserve senior developers because you don't hire junior developers or something or, like that. Oh, there you or go. not hiring develop, not, let's see, hiring, hiring senior developers is costing you money. Yeah, that's a good one. Oh, there you go. Or... <laughs> You're losing money for every junior developer you don't hire. Yeah. So like hitting them in the wallet or yeah. like addressing the business <laughs> hitting them side in the of wallet it. And loss. People are terrified of loss. They actually care less about what they have to gain and more about what they stand to lose. So if you tell someone that they're going to lose something, they're like, blah, no, I can't. So <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, this is this whole interview is just me trying to refine my. <laughs> my no. I'm happy to do it. It's fun. It's fun because it becomes a brainstorming session. Yeah, and this this all kind of ties back to uh, designing and user experience, and really, like at the end of the day, those are just fancy words for like considering the audience of whatever mm -hmm. you're doing, right? Yep. Like what's going to speak to them and what's going to make them listen to you or use your yep. product or be interested in the thing that you're trying to convey. Yeah. So. Um, going along with, uh, the CFP thing, like, um, have you, have you gone to, to give, uh, talks or have you had success with that or? Yeah. So I've given, um, in 20, let's see in 2016 and 17, um, I did a bunch of talks and then, um, I was able to do some talks, a talk in Greece and, um, some talks in the U S as well, uh, in in Georgia and at a couple a couple different conferences which was really fun um and 
I typically like to go and do, <laughs> or at least in the past, I'm doing more like design focused conferences now, but I really love to go and talk about research to developers um, because I, I was so, it made me so sad when I was working with people that they, like when I was working with um, the developers in, not at, not at Gatsby, but at the company I was at before Gatsby, because they had such great ideas, but they, they never actually got to talk to people, like talk to the people that were impacted by their, by the stuff that they made. And so it just, it made me kind of sad because it was like they were missing out on this whole rich set of information. Um, and so when I was giving conference talks before, I actually would talk, do prototyping workshops um, to help people kind of think through how to prototype um, and think through wireframing. And then I did a lot of talks on research for developers. So like how you can talk to your users um, and, and think about things from a user perspective, um, even if you didn't have a research team. Yeah, I was thinking before that, uh, like, first of all, the things that you were talking about whenever you're getting like everybody on the team together to, to kind of discuss an idea, I was like, man, I wonder how many people actually like get to do that and how many people most of the time just get like an email that's like, oh, you have a new ticket in Jira or something like that. Yeah. And it, 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 it's not, and I, it makes me so frustrated because we like, I know that I mean, I'm not a developer, right? But I know what it's like to need dedicated time to actually think through a problem. That, like, I think we all know what that feeling is, but that doesn't mean that you want to have to be the one just like opening a ticket and being and seeing like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. What What is the point of having a team of people if you don't actually get their background and experience in the conversation? Like five minds are by far better than one. So why would we not have all those people talk to each other and learn from each other? So, yeah, I was thinking, uh, if you're ever stuck in an interview and you're asked like, Oh, well, do you have any questions for us? You could absolutely ask, uh, how do you develop a new feature for your product? Or, you know, how, how do you handle a bug? Like mm -hmm. what, what kind of <laughs> meetings, what kind of research do you do? And if they're just like, uh, we create a ticket in Jira and that's the end of the discussion. <laughs> and that's like, when oh, you fascinating. run. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, um, going back to the, the conference talk stuff, uh, mm -hmm. whenever you like first got into it, um, did you have any reservations about it or do you think like people that are new, you know, could be designer or developer, like, should they be submitting CFPs or how do you feel about that? So I think I was really nervous, uh, to speak in front of people. And so my initial reaction, because I was terrified was to, was to submit as many CFPs as possible wow. uh, and speak at a big conference, which which is what I ended up doing. So I got <laughs> I got accepted at a conference in Greece, and it was uh, I, I I purposely didn't do any research on like the venue of the conference. Like I knew what we were, I knew what the conference was about. I I knew who the speakers were. I knew what I was talking about. I knew what other people were talking about. So I kind of saw how I was going to fit in, but I didn't do any research on the venue because I was like, if I know too much, it'll be bad. Uh, and so I found out on the day that 
I like the day that I I went and all that when I first went there that it was one track so that meant everybody was going to be in the auditorium at the same time and it's one person on a stage just talking um and it is scary and I think I think a lot of people are afraid of public speaking because there's a lot of like social anxiety around it and what if I look stupid and you know there's it it brings up a lot of like primal fear Um, but I found that it was actually really freeing because nobody knew me and so all of the stories that I told myself about who I was and the way I spoke and the way I interacted with the world they didn't know any of that. And so when I was backstage, I, like I was sh- just shaking because I was so terrified. And then I was like, <laughs> they don't know me. Like to them, I am, I'm just this new person that they've never heard of or seen. And that means I can be anybody. And so I was like, no, I am confident. I'm well-spoken and I can be afraid, but that doesn't mean that I have to be paralyzed by it. Right. Um, and so I gave myself this kind of silly little pep talk backstage and it totally worked (laughs) because I went up and, uh, started talking and the, uh, I just, I'm rife with technical issues as we saw earlier, but the, uh, this one was not my fault. The projector gave out, like it was an older projector and it would just like stopped working on my second slide. And so I had to like tell jokes for 10 minutes to keep (laughs) people interested. And then I had to announce that we were on a break while we got everything set up again. It was, it was terrifying, but I wasn't And like, by the time I started talking, I wasn't afraid anymore and it was fine. And I, I was like, Oh, so it's not, it's not that bad. Like it's scary, but it's not, it's not the end of the world. And the worst thing that could possibly happen which was everything broke, did. And the talk was still fine after we set everything up. So um, to if you're afraid, I would say, good. Because <laughs> it is scary Check. to get up in front of people. Um, but I think that it is so beneficial, both from a personal growth standpoint, to say, I'm afraid, but I'm going to do it anyway. And it's also important from a community standpoint because I think that the more voices we hear the better we all have had different lived experiences we all interact with the world differently and I think the more that we hear from from uh, different walks of life and different experiences it helps us be more empathetic and it helps us all learn and think about things differently so if you're terrified it's fine do it anyway and if it doesn't yeah. work out, you can always try it again. Yeah, there's a you don't have to like think in your mind like, oh man, I can't be the next TED Talk person or you know <laughs> any of those like famous talks that you see on YouTube or anything. You can absolutely go to a meetup or something and, and give a talk. Absolutely, and, uh, yep. engage in the community and stuff. It doesn't yeah. have to be like a, a big conference. No, doing it on a smaller scale is um, like at a meetup or. Um, even if you have like a group of friends that are interested in the same thing that you are, things that you are getting up and doing it with a group of friends, because it's still that it still gives you that same terror. Honestly, anytime you're talking and you're the only one talking and it's just a bunch of people staring at you, it's kind of scary. So there's all different like amounts of people that you can, you can kind of present to. 
I honestly find meetups more scary. I, really? I swear to you, yes. Because <laughs> the, if I go to a meetup, I live there. I live, <laughs> I live here. I'm going to see them. <laughs> they know me. They can find me. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Um, so maybe uh, for any of the people out there that are like, well, it's, you know, I'm a developer and, you know, Toastmasters isn't for me or I'm not into public speaking. Um, Someone what, said uh, I should try that. Toastmasters? Yeah. Yeah, it's been around forever. Um, I've heard great I, things about it. Or I improv. I would have never I, I have heard that as well. Guessed. I don't know if I do improv. I feel like that's scarier than maybe giving it. I think I think Toastmasters is less scary than improv, but yeah. I I'm not good at thinking on my feet. Me too. I get very nervous and um tongue-tied and I start to up talk. And I start to end my sentences with so I just I do all these nervous ticks, and then I get in my head and I think improv would be really great because it kind of it almost literally pushes you out of that because you have to be somebody else. Yeah, um, I was going to say I, I would have never thought before I became a developer that there was such a culture of public speaking for developers mm-hmm. like there's meetups and everybody's like giving presentations every month there's obviously like conference talks they're all over youtube um but i I never would have thought like from the outside like somebody sitting at their desk writing programming code or whatever would then get up and then present you know to hundreds or thousands of people so it's it's really strange um and on that note uh do you have any advice for people that are either scared of doing that kind of thing or don't think that there's any value in it. Mm-hmm. Um, like what, what are, I guess the benefits to participating in that kind of, uh, public speaking drive in development? I think that there are, there are endless benefits. I think that the first is from a community growth standpoint. So, um, from the conferences that I've either been able to attend or speak at, I have met so many amazing people and made friends and, learned things that I just didn't know, like I technologies that I didn't know about, um, and tools that I didn't know about. So you, it's a wealth of learning and knowledge. Um, so even if you're afraid to speak or you're not ready to speak at a conference, just going, if you have the ability to go and attend, um, I think is really great. And if I think that it also helps you kind of rethink who you think you are, which is important in terms of pushing your own boundaries and and helping you grow. Um, And if you're scared to to talk, I think, like I said, everybody is scared. So literally everyone that speaks is terrified before they do it. Um, So it's just a matter of being okay with being afraid because it won't, it doesn't go away. You just, hopefully learn to manage it better and maybe your knees don't shake as much um, <laughs> or sweaty hands. That's another one. Yeah. Or this, Oh, I do that too. My hands go numb. They like tingle. Cause really? I, like I go into like a, it's like a emergency response where it's like yeah, it's my body wants to conserve. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. And so it like tingles and I have to remind myself to breathe. Am I selling it? I feel like I'm selling it. 
Yeah, so the <laughs> tips we've got so far yeah. are it's terrifying and don't go small, go big. <laughs> <laughs> yep. More people, the better. And your yeah. fingers will go numb, but that's fine. And no, yeah, you it's, may lose it's, some a, it's a lot of fun. You make so many friends and you learn so much um, by, by going. Um, it's just, it's, it, conferences are really fun. Yeah, it's hard for me to breathe for like the first couple of minutes. Yes. <laughs> it is. So it's, it makes it really hard to talk. Well. <laughs> you have to like consciously breathe in and out very slowly. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, um, Eddie, do you have any other uh, like design or uh, conference questions? For yeah, Vanessa? I had a conference question. Like if you wanted a list of conferences that you might be interested or want to like submit to, like where would someone find stuff like that? So, um, I always, and this is going to be kind of lame, but I always do a Google search first for the type of conference. So if you're looking for a front end conference, um, I typically Google it and people on medium put together really fantastic lists that are pretty well curated as well. Um, there, I know for, cause now I've been looking more at, um, design conferences. Um, and there's like a running curated list on medium for design conferences. And I know that there are a few of those for front end dev front end dev conferences as well. There was one I saw on your, I think your website that was in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, That looks interesting. So there's both, um, what was it? There's, uh, one in new Orleans and the one in Atlanta is I'd have to look and I feel so bad. No, that's Um, fine. Uh, Cause it, it was, I can drive there. It was last year. Um, but the one in Atlanta, um, is fantastic and it was so fun. And the, the group of people that, that go, and it's usually like the same kind of group of people each time. Cause it's in Atlanta. So it's like a hub. So mm. you get tons of people and, um, they go every year. Um, so you get to see the same people, uh, at the conference each time, which is really nice. That's cool. I might, I'm considering going. You I'm should pushing, go. Pushing you should Eddie go. at every it's opportunity. It's, it's, it's around really my birthday, good. so I might go anyway. So you can go have a party. <laughs> yeah. See? Do you want to go, Lee? <laughs> yeah, if I can swing it. I'll like see fun. if I get um, Capco to pay for it. Road trip. Yeah. Um, <laughs> cool. So uh, before we get into um, Nerd Bennett at the end of the show, uh, where can people like follow you on Twitter and find you online? And Do you have a website, a blog, all that yeah. stuff? Yeah. Uh, it's all pretty simple. It's marissamorby.com, one S. Uh, and uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Marissa Morby also. That's so. Marissa with an A, correct? Marissa with an A, M-A-R-I-S-A. Awesome. And we'll, we'll link to all that stuff uh, <laughs> yeah. on the show notes. Um, and then you had mentioned that you did a bunch of conference talks. So are any of those on YouTube where people can check them out? Yeah, they're on my site, actually. You can see the list of them, and then there are... Um, you can link to it through my site and that should take you to the YouTube videos as well. Cool. Mm-hmm. So, um, definitely check that out. Uh, I, I certainly will as well. Cause I'm always after any design or UI UX tips <laughs> as a developer. <laughs> um, but at the end of every show, we, uh, we do a little segment called nerd minute mm-hmm. where we just talk about like movies or comic books or games or, uh, whatever it is that you're into. So, mm-hmm. Uh, as you're the guest, uh, do you have anything that you've kind of been enjoying lately? Yeah. So there's been a couple things. Um, the first, uh, is a book that I think was, it was really fun to read 
and also uh, still on design, but it's called Design is Storytelling by Ellen Lupton. And um, it, I got it as a paperback. A lot of times I read stuff on Kindle, but I got this one as a paperback. And it has really fantastic illustrations and thinking about storytelling through all of your designs. So that one was really fun. Um, and then from a non, like a, what's like a non professional standpoint, uh, in terms of books, <laughs> I always, uh, recommend the Discworld series. If people haven't read it, there are 41 books wow. by Whoa. Terry Pratchett. Jeez. I love it. It's so <laughs> funny. So it's, abs- it's like an absurdist take on this universe called the Discworld. Um, and it's these ca- all different characters and like they, they come into contact with one another. They have their little individual stories. It has witches, it has wizards, it has dragons. It has, um, let's see, there's so many creatures. It has fairies, it has time travel. It has death, like as an actual character uh, okay. who's hilarious by the way. So anyway, uh, I've read like 34 of those books and they are amazing. And they're short and easy. What's one that uh, somebody should start with? You have to start with The Color of Magic. That's okay. literally the first one. Okay. But, yeah, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I'm, I'm only familiar with uh, Terry Pratchett because I think, yeah, he wrote uh, Good Omens with Neil Gaiman. He did. Also a, a wonderful book. I'm a book. Huge, huge Neil Gaiman fan. So. Did you watch the show? Yeah, I was just uh, going to bring I've that up. I've only got into the first episode. It's pretty so good. I haven't finished the rest of it. You didn't like it? Well, I watched it with uh, my family, and they weren't oh, okay. as into it as I was. <laughs> so I, lo- I, I loved it. I like. I haven't it. gone back yeah. to it yet. I watched it with my daughter. She liked it. Um, it was pretty good. I liked it. Yeah, yeah. I love the book. Yeah so. the, uh, the the tone of the book is pretty different from what uh, Neil Gaiman is usually writing, which is mm-hmm. like typically a lot of like grim, dark, fantasy yeah. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, Terry Pratchett obviously is is not. And, and uh, all of the like hilarious stuff that happens in Good Omens is because of Terry Pratchett. So like imagine <laughs> that ratcheted up. It's just like it's fun. It's happy. It's absurd. And he actually has some really interesting kind of political commentary in almost every book. It just like the, the it just about how absurd we are as humans and how we think about things. <laughs> so it's a great series. Awesome. I cool. think. uh I think I'll have to check that one out. You probably find a copy of Color Magic for like a couple bucks or something on Amazon, right? Oh, yeah. And you can get it at the library. That would be how I would suggest doing it because there's a lot of books. <laughs> <laughs> and they're little, so you can read them fairly fast. Cool. So, uh, Eddie, you got anything for, for Nerd Minute? So, I started watching Carnival Row on, um, yeah. Yeah, on Amazon Prime. That's pretty good. Um, so, I... I watched the first episode of Did that you? one as well. Yeah. Would you would you recommend it? Because I've been thinking about it, and I uh, I would if you like like fairies and fantasy and stuff like I that. I love it. I yeah, love yeah. that. It's pretty yes. good. There's a okay. there's a, a bit of a war that I'm not complete. I, I I mean I've watched like three episodes, so there's a war. Um, a lot of the fairies and um, they call them pucks, but they're like people with horns. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, but and I think they have hooves. But there's also a murder going on in this um, in this town where they all live because um, a lot of them have left. They're kind of like refugees from the the country that they've been in. And then uh, 
the fairies like live um in this town and then um there's a there are racial things going on and stuff like that because no one likes the 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 fae is what they call them um but it's pretty good um the murder mystery has been pretty good too um i've also been playing yoshi's woolly world with my daughter is that a switch game or it's uh on the wii u okay i don't have a, a switch um and that's been good. The f- it starts out pretty easy, but it's uh, I'm we're in the second world now, so it's getting a little harder. Uh, it's cool to have play two player because I can just you know you ever played um like uh, the Yoshi game on Super Nintendo? Uh, yeah, Yoshi Story. Yeah, or? It, yeah, the like Super Mario World two, but it's not really the sequel. Yeah, okay. whatever. Uh, anyway, you can you instead of the eggs you spit out balls of yarn because everything's <laughs> everything is yarn based so they have that l- little fuzzy look to them so if there's a, a platforming section that she's having trouble with i can just like swallow her and then do the platforming and then spit her out and then we continue <laughs> so, yeah. and there's also like a mellow mode so i which i haven't tried yet because the game hasn't been that hard but um, there's a, a mellow mode, so I, I, I think it's more casual. So if there's a kid that can't make a platforming thing, I think you can't die or something like that. So uh, that's been pretty fun. Yeah. And you get a bunch of different Yoshis. There was a Cal Yoshi. There's a Yoshi that looks like a shy guy. There's a, the, you know, if you get all the yarns, there's like five yarns per stage. You get a new Yoshi with that. And then you could switch stuff like that. It's pretty cool. cool. It's, it's fun. Mar- Marissa, are you a gamer? Or? No, I used to play games a lot when I was in high school. And then I slowly stopped because I spent way too much time on them. <laughs> 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 I do like, a, I used, I was part of a um, an RPG when I was in Austin. And that was really fun. So not the same, but close. Like a tabletop like a, kind of yeah. thing? Or like, oh, okay. Yeah, I loved it. But we haven't found anybody here that has time to be a dm and i don't want was to be it a dungeon uh, master like D D. dungeons and dragons or? it wasn't dungeons and dragons it was oh i'm so terrible with names see what i mean <laughs> about like having to just come up with stuff um it was called it was in space it was like dungeons and dragons but it was um based in like a future world thousands of years in the future with like aliens more sci-fi than fantasy it was more sci-fi than fantasy yeah, yeah. I, but i got to be like a a psyker so i could i like blew somebody's head up with my mind <laughs> that was kind of cool it sounds pretty rad <laughs> it was yeah. awesome that was a fun game i rolled i i like rolled it perfectly it was glorious <laughs> i've uh, i've always wanted to get into the tabletop thing but i just haven't like haven't gone out there and and tried to to be a part of anybody's game or anything yeah uh there's some like game shops around town but i haven't given a, a whirl i watched people at work play D while i was coding something on the side <laughs> man that, it, that sounds sad yeah <laughs> it was fun to watch um they ended up like projecting whatever their tabletop thing was on the wall oh. and then sticking the the little figures on the wall it was kind of cool i enjoyed watching cool. it yeah i just don't have the time to participate yeah, it takes it takes some time, especially yeah. if you're going to be the dungeon master. It takes like the storylines. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's hard work. Yeah, 
Yeah, I can I can relate to that. <laughs> um, the only thing I've got is uh, I played Rogue Legacy, which is uh, that game's amazing. Like, uh, I, I hate it. Really? <laughs> I played it for like twenty <laughs> minutes, and all I did I was love die that the whole game. time. I played it on my um, my Vita for a long time. What's the um, like? What wh- are you the character? Like, what is the game? So the I guess the premise is you're locked in some like cursed castle or something. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get too far into the story, but essentially the gist of it is you're a knight that is going through the castle. And every time you die, uh, your heir yeah. uh, is the next person that you play. So it's like you're playing through the lineage of a family of knights. And so, but the thing is like when you start it, you live like 15 seconds before you get killed by something. <laughs> so you have to go through this menu of like, it's a roguelike okay, now- though. So you're going to die a bunch and then yeah. start over. Yeah. I guess maybe I'm not a fan of the genre, but uh, yeah. basically you spend a lot of time in menus like, okay, how do I spend my gold? Uh, what kind of characteristics do I pick for the next person? So is it, it gives you some choices. Is it kind of a choose your own adventure too, but like strategy? No, or... it's it's like a platforming yeah. oh, kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. It's but... maybe closer to like Castlevania. Okay. Yeah. It, it, I, I liked it. I guess maybe you have to like invest a couple hours into it did so you, you can beat, level up enough. Did to you beat any enough. of the bosses? I didn't even find a boss. Oh, if you beat the first boss, then it gets a little better because then you there's a area where you get outside the castle and there's a forest and then you go below the castle and there's more stuff there and then above the castle there are like different bosses all over the place. It gets really hard now, so. Uh, if it gets really hard, then I'm kind of scared yeah. to pursue it. How is he supposed to fight? D- did you get killed by the boss or was it just in general? Like You get killed okay, a lot. The get... point of the game is that you get murdered a lot, you die a lot, <laughs> and then um, you all the gold you make, you use to buy upgrades for like the next person that goes into okay. the, the... And then you get a choice between like two characters, right? Yeah. I don't know. I had like a bunch of pictures. It's like family portraits like that you three. go through. Yeah, yeah, you get to. And then each each one of them have different like attributes, uh, things that they're good at. Some are good at magic. Some are strong. Some are bigger than usual. Some are really tiny and can jump differently. Like, it's pretty cool. Yeah, some of them have like weird characteristics, like yeah. uh, irritable bowel syndrome. Or yeah, something yeah. Or stuff that's <laughs> it, it's like, oh, this one has ADHD or something, yeah. or weird ailments and stuff. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, my my whole thing was like, you play it for thirty seconds, and like you get into a screen, and there's like fireballs or pictures or junk flying everywhere. Yeah, and or like a really difficult platforming section right at the beginning, and if your character doesn't have enough HP or hit points or whatever. Um, you don't last very long, so you just kind of like go play like a couple rooms, die, go through the menus, go play a couple rooms, die, and like that. I think I gave it like an hour or so, and I was just like, "Gosh, is this all there is to it?" <laughs> but did, maybe I'm getting old. Did you know. play Spelunky? Uh, I have not tried that one yet. Okay, but that's I, I even wanna... worse. That's that's hard. Okay, it's a <laughs> similar kind of thing. Is it like yeah. actual spelunking where you're in a cave? Yeah, you're I like an so, Indiana yeah. Jones kind of guy. You're in a cave, and it's it's really hard. It's a roguelike as well, and mm-hmm. it's randomly rolled. So like every time you start it, the stage is different. You start in the same area, like a cave, mm-hmm. but it's a different cave or a different level yeah. every single time, which is really cool. Like just thinking about code wise and stuff like that that's really awesome the way they everything changes it's never the same so um yeah 
but it's also super hard. And that second one's yeah, coming out pretty soon. It's uh it's a really there's a um gosh, what's the book? I think it's like it's either Boss Fight Games or something like that, but it's a book I think by the guy that created Spelunky, mm-hmm. which is incredibly interesting because it goes through like his design process and how he like did the level generation and stuff. Yeah. Um from a high level, so it doesn't get into like the the details of it. So uh, reading that was really great, but I, I imagine I'd probably be really frustrated by the game itself <laughs> because you probably get just kind of trashed by the levels over and over again. Yeah. The, uh, I never really got into it, but there are people that just stream it all the time. It's it's pretty cool. Going back to uh, to Carnival Row, like how many episodes did you get into that? Three. And it's still uh, good so far, or does it... Does it, it kind of get better it's as cool you go, because or? uh the the murder like mystery thing has changed like they've uh, initially someone was just killing like the fairy people because uh, whatever he's an idiot anyway um <laughs> then it's turned to like this more mystical thing like they've there's someone like kind of uh there's kind of like a zombie thing that's running around killing uh fairies or other more than just fairies now and um, they're trying to figure out who created it. There's a, there's a bunch of... There's also a political thing happening, like the B story, um, which is kind of cool. Um, but it, it's, it's I'm only like three or four episodes in, so... I heard the CG was good. Yeah, it. yeah, it, it, yeah. Looks, it, looked it good. looks really good, yeah. Yeah, I also... I, <laughs> I watched uh, Woo Assassins. Have you seen that? <laughs> <laughs> I saw the uh, the trailer on Netflix. Yeah, that's the opposite. What is it called? Woo Assassins. <laughs> so, if have you ever seen Redemption? Yeah. The Redemption. That movie's awesome. Well, that guy was in this show. It's a Netflix show. Okay. Um, and this is the opposite, where the CG is kind of bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the story, which is kinda, also kind of fun. Yeah. Honestly, the story's crap and whatnot, but I just watch it for the fight <laughs> scenes. <laughs> Which is not as good so. as the Redemption. The Redemption's amazing, like both of them. And okay. uh, what's the other movie? Oh, I forgot. If you look up his name on Netflix, there's a bunch of stuff he's in that's pretty good. If you just like to watch people fight. All right. Yeah. So uh, Kung Fu definitely movies. a guilty pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So um, I think we can we can wrap it up there. Okay. Uh, we won't torture birds with video <laughs> games or kung fu stuff. No, I always um, like learning about new stuff. <laughs> cool. So um, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and sharing all of your uh, your experience and, and knowledge with us. We, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you for having me. All it was right, good talking we'll, uh, to you. Yeah, yeah, you too. Uh, hopefully we can, we can have you back sometime. Yeah, we'd be happy to. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks for listening to Tech Junior. Head on over to our site at techjr.dev for show notes and past episodes. While you're there, click subscribe to get an email from us once a week with the latest episode and some other goodies. Follow us on Twitter at TechJR Podcast. You can follow me at Lee Ward Jr. and Eddie at ED0TER0. Join us next week where we're going to talk about Node uh, with a Node developer, Phil Palmieri. So we're going to dig into uh, the stuff that you need to know and kind of the areas of Node or adjacent technologies that are really good to brush up on if you're trying to get a job uh, working with Node.js. So uh, we had a blast talking to Phil. Um, He is a a local guy down here in Orlando. And 
a really great mentor and teacher. So uh, we think you're going to enjoy it. Check that out next Wednesday. All right, that's all I've got. I'll see you guys next week. Uh, take care.